1: That's a hard-driving New York City TV news theme, inviting viewers into a fast-paced world where journalists tell their dramatic stories. Hello, I'm Laura Landon, and today on the New Books Network, we meet one of the best-known New York City TV journalists, Marvin Scott.
2: I'm Marvin Scott in Washington. Marvin Scott reporting from Israel. I'm Marvin Scott on the bridge of the USS Alexandria. As much as I'm harnessed in here, I'm feeling my body lifting. (laughs) There goes my glove. I'm a storyteller, and over the course of 50 years, I feel I've told ooh, probably in excess of 15,000 stories. I've interviewed in excess of 30,000 people. What an incredible ride.
1: Marvin Scott's incredible ride in journalism began with a raging fire in the Bronx when he was only 14.
2: I had a dream of being a reporter. I grabbed my camera, and I took a picture, and I sold it to the New York Daily News. I was hooked.
1: Marvin Scott writes about a journalism career spanning more than 50 years in his newly published book, As I Saw It, A Reporter's Intrepid Journey. His book tells the stories of memorable people. Marvin Scott writes that at the heart of every story, big and small, is a person. It's the people who
2: make the news. I'm blessed to still be doing what I dreamed of doing as a kid, chasing fire engines back in the Bronx.
1: In his preface to the book, veteran TV news anchor Dan Rather describes Scott as a reporter using old-fashioned methods, working the phones, wearing out shoe leather, developing sources. Those methods and his skills as a storyteller have won Marvin Scott 11 Emmy Awards, as well as an induction into the New York State Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Marvin Scott is currently the senior correspondent for New York's WPIX-TV. Along the way, he has written for the New York Herald Tribune and Parade Magazine. He has worked as a radio reporter for the Mutual Broadcasting System and has served as a television anchor, correspondent, and producer at broadcast outfits such as CNN, WNEW, and WABC. His book, As I Saw It, tells 26 memorable stories, including the horrors of September 11, 2001, a day that Scott calls the worst in American history. We reached Marvin Scott at his home in New Jersey. The interviewer is Canadian journalist Bruce Wark.
0: Well, Marvin Scott, thank you so much for joining me today on the New Books Network.
2: Bruce, it's good to be with you.
0: Let's begin with your vivid chapter, Remembering September 11th, 2001. What happened on that uh, memorable day as you struggled to cover the events?
2: Well, I was sleeping late that day because we had the New York mayoral primary that night and I was working the night shift. I was jostled out of bed by a phone call shortly after nine o'clock and it was my daughter. Uh, incoherent, telling me a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center and, and I thought I was dreaming. I, I did not didn't register immediately. I said what? I turned on the television set and all saw it all unfolding. I immediately tried to reach my assignment desk. The phones were dead. Uh, it was uh, sometime later I reached my wife in the city on her cell phone and she managed to connect me with my assignment desk and uh, they told me to go to a triage area. Uh, and I said, this is the biggest story of my career. I'm not going to a triage area out in New Jersey and I'm, I'm coming into the city. Well, that was my intent. It was very difficult getting into the city. I passed the checkpoint where the, uh, police officers knew me and they saw my credentials, they allowed me to, uh, get to the ferry. I lived just across the Hudson river in, uh, in New Jersey. And, uh, I tried getting on a ferry and they would not allow me. They said, basically, the city is closed, and any credentials I showed did not help. While I was at the ferry, I spy I saw a small powerboat nearby at the gas dock. I charged over there, and I pleaded with the owner of the boat to let me aboard to get across to the city. He knew who I was from television. He said, sure, Marvin, come aboard. Well, we got across the river, and the vivid, the graphic of seeing the white wake behind the boat and the black cloud coming northward as we got across, um, I was expecting to go down to ground zero. But when I finally got to the studio, I was pressed into the studio because one of our anchors was on vacation, and the evening anchor was filling in, so someone had to fill the slot which he had been on the air for many hours, and I sat there for eight, ten hours. I lost, I lost track of of time, just talking to people and talking to our reporters in the field, and it it was a situation, Bruce, unlike any other I had been in my career. I wasn't just covering a story; I was actually a part of the story because this was in my own backyard. And here, this was tragedy. We had no idea at that moment how many people. It could have been with thousands, over 10,000. And I remember talking to family members who were looking for loved ones who were lost, and they didn't know where they were. And I remember there was one moment where I shed some tears. It was spontaneous. I was not embarrassed. I remember wiping a tear from my cheek. While I was interviewing a woman who told me her husband was a survivor, that she was confident he would be home for dinner. When I knew that was unlikely, he was on the top floor at the restaurant, Windows of the World, and there was no way people who were at that location could have survived. It was difficult speaking to the loved one as they talked about their husbands, their daughters, their fathers, their sons. And the flashback was, The time I had lunch with my son and daughter at Windows on the World and so many pictures I had taken. And days later, I was rummaging through my photo file. And when I came across the picture of me and my kids sitting there, I just burst into tears at home. The privacy in my home is there, but for the grace of God. It was probably, I have to say, the toughest assignment I ever had. Um, But also, it was an important one. Because as reporters, we're informers. We consult, we educate, and people just were crying out for information. Anything we had, there was so much speculation. And it was maybe a day or so after we all said, let's stop using the video of the planes crashing into the buildings, because it was just so painful. It just was a dagger through your heart every time you saw that, that video and we eliminated that. So that was September 11th, 2001. It was an awful, awful time and the worst day, I think, in American history.
0: Now, you've been a journalist all your life, more than 50 years. Um, uh, how, When and how did your career begin, Marvin?
2: Well, I can honestly say my, my, my career was ignited by a fire. <laughs> I was a 15-year-old kid, Actually, uh, I think I was a teen at the time, Uh, at home at 11 o'clock at night watching television. And I certainly heard sirens, fire trucks racing by. I looked out the window and night had transformed into day. There was this raging inferno around the corner from my building in the Bronx where I grew up. And uh, I was uh, a photo bug. I had a passion for photography. It was my hobby. I grabbed my camera, raced downstairs, raced to the scene of the fire, got there just as they were arriving. I took a photograph of this catering hall with flames belching from about eight or 10 windows, and uh, I sold the pictures to the New York Daily News. They paid me a $2 messenger fee for bringing the pictures to their offices, and then I got $25 when the picture appeared in the paper, along with a credit line. But it was interesting because... When I returned to my apartment building, all my neighbors were standing on the corner about the three or four blocks away from the fire, and they all wanted to know what happened, what happened. Well, there I was, a 14-year-old kid telling them the story, and you could say that was my first newscast. I, I, I found a certain excitement being at the scene where something was happening in it, and I continued with my photography, and I, I sold pictures to New York newspapers. A year later, I managed to get into an opening night of the circus where Marilyn Monroe was to ride a pink elephant. It was her first public appearance after her divorce from Joe DiMaggio, and I sold those pictures to a magazine. So I was bitten by the the bug of of being at the scene of events, uh, good and bad, and I studied journalism at New York University and got my first job as chief cook and bottle washer at a station in Charleston, West Virginia that was an experience, really got my feet wet. And the rest you can say, Bruce, the rest is history. <laughs>
0: right. Well, you write in your book that at the heart of every story, big and small is a person. It is the people who make the news and the journalist who fashions the words that communicate their stories. We are simply the storytellers. and Absolutely. Yeah, and in your book, you tell uh, a fascinating story about uh, Charlie Walsh. Um, how did that one go?
2: Charlie Walsh, the everyman. Uh, he carried out, I think, the fantasy of many people. The bank, his bank, made an error. They credited $100,000 to an account that was only had $1,200. He was uh, destitute. He had lost his job working for a financial company where he was a clerk on Wall Street. He had a foreclosure on his house because he hadn't paid taxes. So here he looked at it, and then he first, he thought, well, it was a mistake. So he did bank every opportunity to catch the mistake. He went to the bank. He withdrew some money within his $1,200 range. And he asked the teller in the days before the ATM machines he asked to tell her, was his balance correct? Yes, Mr. Walsh. Uh, yeah, you have $100,000, dollars <laughs> $1, there. He went home and he started fantasizing. Was this some gift? Uh, was something? But he waited. He didn't touch that money. He waited till his next bank statement came through. And still, it showed a balance of over $100,000. Went back to the bank. And they still confirmed it. After a while, I think about a month later, he started to withdraw money. Over the next three or four weeks, he withdrew all but eighty-six dollars in change. To which I asked later on, why? Why did you leave the eighty-six dollars in the bank? And he said he didn't want to close out the account. (laughs) He bought a five-dollar no, first he had a, a little case in which he put the money. Then he changed it into a $5 um, vinyl bag he bought at Woolworths. Um, and he started traveling cross-country. His goal was to go out to the Pacific Northwest and open a mom-and-pop store, a candy store. He took off, he bought himself, a he used Ford Fairlane, one of the bigger expenses of his Odyssey, and he went cross-country. And the story... It was an incredible story of, of a man who was frugal all his life, remained frugal on the on, on the lamb with over $100,000 in cashier's checks and cash in, in his vinyl bag, and he had situations along the way. Biggest uh, situation he had when he got to Las Vegas. This was the greatest expense. He decided to hire two prostitutes. I think it cost them $300. And he hadn't been with a woman in many, many years. He was very self-conscious, didn't know what to do, and the women put him at ease. And uh, that was probably the, the greatest thing he did on this trip. Eventually, he was, uh, he was caught. He tried getting uh, false identification as he traveled, and that was difficult because he still had New Jersey license plates. Eventually, he was caught in Portland because of his frugality. He parked his car on the street at a time police were testing a new onboard computer system. And they saw an out of town plate. They t- typed in his number, and tilt there it was. It was a guy who was wanted by authorities back in New Jersey. And Charlie came back to New Jersey, was arrested. Uh, there were editorials in the paper let this guy get away. He didn't, he didn't hold up the bank. He wasn't a John Dillinger. They wanted to make him the grand marshal of the St. Patrick's Day parade. So Charlie went on. And sadly, uh, about a year later, he had cancer and he passed away. That was Charlie's story. Incredible story.
0: Yeah, quite a story. A a story from uh, an unemployed guy who becomes a celebrity because of a bank error
2: he became a celebrity. He was a hero. They cheered him on when he got back. When he got back home, they cheered him on, Charlie, you should have kept the money. You should have kept going. And, um, he, was a, he was a wonderful character who stands out in my mind, and that's why I wrote about him in the book.
0: Now, much of your career as a journalist has been spent covering local stories in New York City. How would you describe chasing local news in
2: the Big Apple? Eclectic, exciting. No two days ever alike. I've told people stories. Um, It could be from something light to something heavy uh, to covering, as I did recently, um, a home invasion in Brooklyn where an elderly couple was tied up. uh, And the 91-year-old husband succumbed to a heart attack uh, as he fell to the floor. And they just made arrests in that case. Um, the next day I could be doing a lighthearted story about a woman who put up wind chimes in her Brooklyn neighborhood as a tribute to her deceased mother. Um, and, and, and it caused a problem with some neighbors who didn't like hearing the sound of the wind chimes at night when they left their windows open. So the stories, they range. It's, I use the word eclectic. They go from the, the serious to the ridiculous. I still get energized. I get energized each day I go to work. I feel blessed that I'm still doing now what I wanted to do when I was a teenager.
0: I I noticed that Dan Rather says in the preface to your book that he calls, uh, local TV news, a jungle of fierce competition. Certainly that comes through in your book too. You're always trying to get the scoop,
2: get the story first. Absolutely. Um, and I've had my share of exclusives. Um, I talk about the agony and ecstasy of of exclusives. Um, Going with the information, making certain I have trust in my sources. I must have at least two sources for every story. However, I do tell in the book on the one occasion that I had one source, but it was an unimpeachable source. Um, And my news director would not allow me to go on the air with it without another source. Uh, It was when we had Osama bin Laden and the report came out on a Sunday night that the president was going to make an important uh, public appearance on television that night, uh, something dealing with national security. And the rumors were that it had something to do with Osama bin Laden. I reached out to some of my sources in Washington, one in particular, who was not on a call with the, quote, White House He was one of the people who was on the phone with the president, and I knew that because of his position. Uh, I called him on one occasion, and he couldn't tell me anything. Uh, I called him a second time, still could not tell me anything. He said, I'll be on with the White House shortly, but Marvin, I, I really can't tell you anything. Well, I called him back about 40 minutes later, and he said, look, I've been sworn to secrecy. I cannot tell you anything. And I pressed, as a good reporter would. And I said, look, you've been a good friend, and I don't want to compromise you, but just tell me. Is Osama bin Laden? Is he dead? He hedged, he hedged, he hedged. And finally he said, yes, but you didn't hear it from me. The source was so good that later on, when I told my boss about it, the news director, he said he probably would have let me go with it, but I did not speak with him directly that night. So that was frustrating. I, I could have had the story about 20 minutes before I believe it was broken on CNN reporting that uh, our, our Marines had killed bin Laden.
0: But you didn't have that second source.
2: No, and that's why the news director would not let me. And he and I didn't have direct contact that night. And he said when I reached out to him and talked to him again while I was writing this book, He told me, had we spoken that night, and I told him who my source was, he probably would have let me go with it.
0: Now, Marvin, um, I notice in your book that uh, there is only one reference to Donald Trump, and that's a picture, a photo of Trump with you and your microphone. Um, I'm wondering about uh, what you thought of Donald Trump. And the many, many stories he he created in New York City during the many years you were covering local news there.
2: The Friars Club, of which I'm a member, roasted him one year. And it was the same year I was being honored by the club as Friar of the Year. And here we were, dais, with all these comedians up there ready to roast him. And I got up to say thank you for the honor. <laughs> and I looked at Donald and I said, Donald, Eat your heart out. I'm the only one in on those days today that they're gonna to say anything nice about. <laughs> he got a good chuckle out of that. I was with him on his fifty seventh birthday at the Taj Mahal in Atlantic City, where I, I hosted a little reception for him at uh, uh, in the arena at the hotel. And we had dinner afterwards with him and Melania and his two sons. And Donald was always I would say braggadocious. Absolutely. He was like a kid in a candy store. He said, Marvin, come here. I want to show you. I want to show you this. As so we walked through the casino. He wanted to show me the disco he had and the girls dancing in there. And uh, uh, I I always I always liked him. I will not talk about anything politically. I've always made that a policy of mine because I'm a storyteller, not a commentator. Uh, but from my personal relationship with Donald Trump, I always liked him. Uh, I'm not talking about politically anything, but my personal relationship with him as 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 a reporter and um, as a quasi-friend, yes.
1: You're listening to a New Books Network interview with veteran New York TV journalist Marvin Scott, author of the book As I Saw It, A Reporter's Intrepid Journey. The interviewer is Canadian journalist Bruce Wark.
0: Marvin Scott, I, I you tell a fascinating story in your book about your dealings with Abraham Zapruder, the man who shot the famous footage of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Um, What happened there, and what did that encounter with Zapruder allow you to do?
2: Back in 1966, the third anniversary of the assassination, I went to Dallas. I was with the mutual radio network at the time. I called him from my hotel room requesting an interview. He begged off. He said, "Mr. Scott, thank you very much. I appreciate your call, but I don't do interviews." And as I later learned from the sixth floor museum in uh, in Dallas in Dealey Plaza, he only did about six in his uh, post assassination, and I was one of them. Um, as he begged off, I knew he was from originally from New York, from Brooklyn, uh, son of a Russian immigrants, uh, Jewish Russian immigrants, and we chatted and. Even though he said no, we kept talking, and it got to a point he wanted to know more about me. And finally, I got to the point. Somehow, the conversation turned to our religion. Uh, he was Jewish. I'm Jewish. Um, and once I let him know that we were members, quote, of the same tribe, he said, "Okay, come on over at two o'clock," and that began the relationship. Uh, when I got to the office, it was a Jennifer Junior, a dress manufacturer. I I said, "Mister Zapruder." Rather than do it here, you mind walking downstairs where you were standing? He agreed to that. He and his assistant, Marilyn Sitzman, uh, we stood at the very spot where he took that film. And he related what happened that day. We had about a 20-minute interview. He described vividly what he saw through his viewfinder. When I got to see the film, I felt that if I could ever get my hands on that film, I could sink that portion of the interview, to make it sound as though he is narrating it. It took me 40 years to achieve that, because originally the film was owned by Time Life, and then the Library of Congress. And then uh, the Sixth form Museum had the licensing rights. So I called them and basically said, you have something I want. I have something I think you will want. Let's make a deal. Well, we did. They overnighted me the film. I overnighted them a copy of my interview. They went wild over that interview. They said they learned more from my interview with him than anything he told the Warren Commission or the Clay Shaw trial. On the 40th anniversary, I took the 26.6 seconds of his film and the 33 seconds of my audio portion, which I trimmed down to the 26 seconds, and we put that on the air sounding like Abe Zapruder was actually narrating that portion of that horrible film. Uh, which is my material is now part of the permanent uh, archives of the assassination in Dallas, um, and we've got another anniversary coming up, uh, and I and I recount that. But he was very special, and very down to earth, uh, and very forthright in what he told me.
0: Now, Marvin, just my final question, I notice in your book you say that you're writing this book for your grandchildren, that it's kind of a time capsule of life as it once was, a kind of, that's a kind of poignant way uh, to end. Um, what was life as it once was for you in more than 50 years as a reporter?
2: Technology. When I started, and I told you earlier, I started it off in Charleston, West Virginia, in the days of film, I had to shoot the film. I remember interviewing the governor of uh, West Virginia. I'd set the camera up, I'd let it roll, I'd jump into the shot do my interview. I had to go back to the station and I had to process it literally by hand, putting it in the developer, the hypo, and then drying it and editing it. Um, those were the ancient <laughs> vintage days and I've seen it evolve from going from coaxial cable to satellites back in 1963 when the assassination occurred. We we had film, and, and we didn't have the instant access we have today. So that is the major change, the technological changes. I remember days we couldn't get signals out of the South Bronx. And then years later, here I was reporting live from Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, also, the changes I've seen is The economic conditions have changed things where there have been cutbacks. The bean counters have cut back some of the uh, personnel, the seasoned reporters, the beat reporters who would be at the courthouse, the city hall and uh, other locations. We've lost that. We've lost many of the editors who checked our copy before. Uh, So those are the changes I have seen over the years. And what I've seen, sadly, is the attitude of people towards those of us who are responsible journalists Uh, and that is the result of the advent of digital media, social media. That has changed it. 67% of the American people surveyed said they get their news from social media, 44% from Facebook alone. And they, they play by different standards, not the same rules that we learned in journalism school. And I continue to practice today. And so do, so do my colleagues. And social media, they put the news on, they put it, the the attitude is get it on first and check the facts afterwards. That is the sad thing that is happening today. And that's what's given rise to this whole uh, thing with fake news. Um, And it's unfortunate that some of the mainstream media see something on social media and they put it on before they check the facts. Really case in point, a couple of months ago, my wife was up late and she shouts out to me from the other room, oh. Prince Philip died. All right, he's in his 90s. In the morning, I'm listening to the radio, and I'm hearing Prince Philip has stepped down from his duties. He's officially resigned from And I asked my wife, where would you hear that he died? She said it was all over social media at 1 in the morning. So that is an example of what's going on and the sad thing in journalism today. We are in an honorable profession. But I ask, you know, what, what happened to, to the Maxim, the old Maxim of newsrooms, who, what, when? where, and why. I still adhere to that, and, and I say many of my colleagues do, and we do a good job. There are some people who have been irresponsible, but overall, we're an honorable profession. Back in the days of Watergate, Woodward and Bernstein, we all became heroes. There was an uptick in uh, students who wanted to go to journalism schools, and today, people feel they don't trust us. We have to regain. That trust of the public, and I hope I hope we can achieve that.
0: Well, Marvin
2: Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, Bruce, it's uh, been a pleasure. You know, uh, I I know all the subjects in this book, and they're fascinating stories. I know we didn't get to talk to a lot, about a lot of them. There's the Martin Luther King story, meeting him, uh, telling me I asked him why he put his life on the line, and he looked me in the eye and said, "For the children, for the children." Is the story of I talk about behind every story as a person. Uh, There's the story of Stephanie Collado, who needed a new heart and touched mine. Anyone who reads the book will find it fascinating. Um, I, I assure you of that. It's a composite of stories. I've done, my estimate, 15,000 stories over the years, 30,000 interviews over 50 years. And uh, what I selected were 26 of the more unique stories. Uh, but it's, I said, to use the word earlier, eclectic. It has been a fascinating 50 years of telling stories, and I'm still telling them, and that is a blessing for me.
0: Thanks again, Marvin. I appreciate your time.
2: Uh, Bruce, good talking to you. Thank you. Have a good day.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Marvin Scott, the veteran New York TV journalist and author of the book, As I Saw It, A Reporter's Intrepid Journey. The interviewer was Bruce Wark. I'm Laura Landon. See you next time on the New Books Network.